Hi, everyone, and welcome. My name is Gail Ashmore, and we have started this journey on family discipleship. What is family discipleship? How do we practice it within our homes and within our families? And today we're on our second session. And so for before we begin, um, I just want to invite you, whatever it is that you are currently doing, whatever space that you're in right now, I just want to invite you into a holy pause, just to be with the Lord, um, to create space for God's presence in um, whatever area that you're in. And so I just want to pray over us before we begin, and then we'll get started. Father, um, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that um, you are accommodating God, that you meet us where we are at, God, during this time um, with you and this fellowship with you, that we would just turn our affections, we turn our attention um, towards you, Father, as we start to give over our homes and give over our families to you, God, we ask that you would show us what discipleship looks like. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for um, listening and joining in today. Um, Like I said, my name is Gail Ashmore. I am a member of First Reformed, or now Centerpoint, which is so exciting. And um, one of the things I'm really, really passionate about is family flourishing and what it looks like to be attentive to God's presence in our home and for that to be the basis of our family discipleship. And so in this class, um, what what gathers us? What's the, uni- what's the uniting force? And Um, Everyone that is listening in today and everyone that's involved in this has a mutual desire to give our homes to the redeeming work of Christ. And so what does that look like? How do we give our homes over to the redeeming work of Christ? So for my hope for today is that we can further commune with God and commune with each other in this mutual desire. So our first session that we did um, back in January is we talked about the foundation of family discipleship. So what is it? And we kind of looked at three pillars. And so just to review really quickly, we looked at this Genesis origin. You know, what was God's idea for family? And the first pillar that we looked at was image bearing. So we just asked God as creator. We placed him at the center of our homes. Um, We asked him, God, what's your divine perspective of both the individuals in our family and also just our family as a whole. God, what are your dreams for our family? What are your thoughts? Give us your perspective. We talked about naming and inflaming the the, the divine aspects that we see in our children. And this is what introduces us to celebrate the divine in our children and in our spouse. The second thing that we talked about with this, just this purpose of belonging that God created us to be in communion with him and with others. And family gets to be this hub of belonging in a community. That each individual member is invited to the table of community. That through the home they are grafted into the full picture of the kingdom. That in the home they get to practice communion with God and communion with each other. Not for our namesake. So this isn't about the Ashmore name. It's not about... Um, whatever name that you guys hold in your family. It's for the glory of God and for his name's sake that we practice this in our home. And then the third pillar and the purpose of families is um, mission. So in this Genesis origin, we talked about that family is just this vehicle 
of God's presence. That when he created family, that it was the goal was to fill the earth with abundance and fill the earth with his presence. And we talked about cultivating what's our specific mission in our home. If we have this Genesis mission of carrying God's presence to the earth, and what's our specific mission? Um, what does everyone bring to the table? What are our passions? What are our resources? What time do we have so that we can, as a family, be on mission to make God known in our world? So just to summarize that up, um, family and the Genesis origin of it is to reflect the divine through image-bearing, belonging, and mission. And real briefly, I want to just take a moment to allow you to um, pause and think about this. But we talked about threats on family. And the first one was images. You know, I hope we've had time to kind of think about, you know, what images have we been trusting in over our family? Have we been trusting in the perfect idea of a family? Have we been trusting in certain images of ourselves and um, reputations that we want to maintain? Or perhaps a threat that we've seen on our family is isolation. That there are things that are, uh, are a threat to us belonging in our home. That sometimes our attention separates us. Or perhaps it's our words or our silence that separate us. So that we feel more isolated from each other than we do feel connected. And then the third threat is individualism. Where Perhaps instead of Christ being the mission, we've made our family the mission. We've made our family's happiness the mission. We've made um, our family's reputation the mission rather than Christ the mission at the center of our family. And then we looked briefly at um, God's restorative plan. And I love this part is that, you know, the very people that broke God's idea of family, Adam and Eve, are the very people that he chose to use to restore his people back to himself. And we see this carried from Adam and Eve to Abraham and his family and the people of Israel and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and now us. That this is what brings us to our topic today, that any family in any context, is invited into the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, and that starts with family discipleship. That starts with our homes. We are invited into something so much greater than ourselves and our families. So our topic today is, what is family discipleship? You know, how do we do this idea of family discipleship after the fall? How is it possible? I'm excited because today we get to go to one of the first times that we actually see family discipleship described in Scripture. Um, it's in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5, and it says this. Basically, Moses is giving them the Shema, okay? So the Shema is as essential as the Lord's Prayer in Jewish culture. It's this centering foundation of all that they believe and all that they do. And he says this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And we have to see that here, love is an action word. When he says, love the Lord your God, it's about putting love and faithfulness to God into action. Basically, loving God is like this fundamental con commandment of what it means to be a soul, of what it means to be a person. And I love where he goes next. Observe who he begins with. 
He says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. I love that. I love that after he gave this, this centering foundational piece of what it means to be a soul is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then he addresses family. I think we can observe here this word impress or impart. When he says impress them on your children, it literally means the ability to give unto others that which God has given to us. You see, for the Israelites, they were to be constantly reflecting on God's law. But the important thing to see is that it started with their individual hearts first and that it overflowed to their children. So if you picture like a well, they were to be so absorbed in God's law and so um, meditating on it day and night that it flowed from their own individual heart to his or her own family in the home. To impress, to impart, to give unto your children that which you've received. It's a powerful picture and one that we need to remember um, throughout the rest of our teaching today. So what I kind of want to do is walk through three just brief observations from the Old Testament. And so by doing so, um, just seeing like, what was the first framework for family discipleship? What can we learn from this framework? And the first one is this. The first one is that attentiveness to God's law was continual. Attentiveness to God's law was continual. So if you look at in the scripture in Deuteronomy 6, he says, when you lie down and when you rise up, you know, there's, there was this time when my son was three years old and he went through this phase. They all go through phases, right? Um, We say they end, but they go on for a long time and it's a joy and it's a journey. (laughs) But there was this phase he was going through where um, pretty much every three minutes, I would hear, hey, mom, watch this, or hey, mom, watch that, or hey, mom, look at me, watch me, look at me, watch me, mom, mom, look at me, watch me. And what I find fascinating about this is that that young boy would not relent until both of my eyes had their attention on whatever flip or whatever maneuver it was that he was doing at that time. And what I think we need to see here is that there, when he's talking about when you lie down and when you rise up, is that there was this kind of continual attention. See, my son wanted my continual attention. And this literary device called merism, lie down and rise up, tells us that this teaching to children was not meant to be this one-time, once-per-week activity Moses was instructing them to talk about these words continually, regardless of what was happening that day. So in other words, as we can see it, God was integrated into every activity. 
But we have to ask ourselves, you know, how is that possible? We think about today that seems absolutely impossible. How could we integrate God into every activity? We're just too busy. Our attention is on too much. It's, it just seems like way too lofty of a task. But the truth is the way that they did it is that God's law at the time covered every single behavior. So basically there was a law for every moment of the day. God's law was practiced and practiced and practiced because it brought, provided an opportunity to connect any moment to God. So, for instance, if we looked at this in uh, a modern-day example, it would be, it, you know, there'd be a law about going to the kitchen sink. Well, your son or your daughter is going to the kitchen sink. There's an opportunity to connect them to God. Your son or daughter is doing their homework. Oh, there's a law about that. There's an opportunity to connect what they're doing to God. So it was this beautiful integration. It was the first thing that we can see is that attention and attentiveness to God's law was continual. It's powerful. The second observation that I want to make as we see in the Old Testament, so after the fall, practicing family discipleship was this, that participation with God's law was holistic. So if we look back at the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, Moses addresses the soul. He says, love the Lord your God with your whole heart and with all of your soul. And soul, in this context, could be understood as the whole self. So not only did they integrate God's law into moments throughout the day, they literally wore God's commandments as a family. Moses instructed them to bind them as a sign on their hand and as frontals on their foreheads. So they wrote God's law. They inscripted God's law on their bodies. And in a sense, we could see that families were like clothed with God's law. And I think we have to see that, you know, not only did this equip them, but it became this witness, you know, to everyone knew what they believed and who they belonged to is that they involved their whole lives and their whole bodies with God's law. And what I just love to picture is that they were clothed in it, that they wore it. It was a part of who they were. It involved their whole selves. The third observation that I would like to make from the Old Testament is that God's law was their household framework. He says this, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house. You know, if you've ever um, decided to build a house, I would love the opportunity to build a house from scratch one day. I think it's fascinating and watching any HGTV show about um, building homes. It's just captivating to see, you know, where do people start? What are the first things they think about when they're um, designing their home in which they're going to dwell in. And I don't know about for you, but if I had space to create a home, I think the first thing I'm going to think about is where my jacuzzi tub's going to go. And then second, uh, where's my porch going to be so I can sit outside, right? It's all of these um, things that we immediately go to with planning a home. But then I go to the Israelites, and I think about their homes, 
And the first thing that they would think about is where would they inscript God's law? Where would they write God's law in the door frames and on the posts and on their fence? Where would they place God's law? What That would be their main framework in building a home. And it says that they were supposed to remember God's law when they go out and when they come back. You see cities and communities at that time, um, they specifically had... God's law written on their city gates. And so it was as if the community and these individual homes all had the same mission statement, that they were united in God's law. I think here we have to see that Moses is saying that God's law is essential for the foundation, not only for a community, but within the home, this constant reminder of what mission statement, what drives us, what are we united in, what are we about? So just these visual reminders. So I think what we can gather from this Old Testament framework of family discipleship is that attentiveness to God's law was continual participation with God's law was holistic, involved the whole person, and that God's law was their household framework. So I think the question is, so what? What does this mean for us? You know, that that was thousands of years ago. This was in the Old Testament. What can we take away from the Shema? What can we gather from this ancient concept of family? Well, I think the first thing that we can, can gather is that the family is the primary instrument and environment for discipleship in the life of a child. It's the primary instrument and environment for the discipleship in the life of a child. It's always been that. And it always will be the primary instrument and environment Matt Chandler says it this way, your calling in this life is to give the discipleship in your home your unique best. What is your unique best? What do you have to offer to your family? And so I think, think about your situation. Are you a mom, a dad, an aunt or uncle or grandparent, a stepdad, a stepmom, a cousin, a guardian, We all are disciple makers. We are all invited to the seat of the table when it comes to discipleship within our own home. The difference is between us and the Israelites is Jesus. The difference between us and the Israelites is the redeeming work of Christ. You see, Jesus fulfilled the law. And I think when we look in Matthew 28, we, if we remember the commission in Genesis about go and fill the earth and multiply and, and spread the earth with my abundance through your family, if that was the commission in Genesis, then we see the commission given again, restored back in Matthew 28. And I think this is the most fundamental thing that we have to remember about family discipleship is this right here is that Jesus told us that all authority in heaven 
and all authority on earth has been given to us. So since all authority in heaven and on earth was given to Jesus, then we have access to the position of Jesus. We have access to the authority of Jesus, the fullness of Jesus, the abundance of Jesus, and the righteousness of Jesus. So we're doing this as parents and as whatever position that we have out of the overflow of who Christ is because we are benef- we benefit from his work. We receive his work. And then he says this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So not only have we been given the authority and the fullness of Jesus to do this work, but we have been called to make disciples within our own home, that that word go in Matthew 28 is not just talking about leaving and going and making disciples, but as you are going, as you are putting your kids to bed, as you are having a a teaching moment or a discipline moment, as you are doing Legos, as you are going, you're making disciples within your home. It's a beautiful and powerful picture, and you have the authority and the fullness of Jesus to do so. So here's my definition of family discipleship. If you take Deuteronomy 6 and the redeeming work of Christ, then we have this. It's by committing our attention, our souls, and our space. So basically committing our families to the redeeming work of Christ so that he can be formed in us and made known to the world. Committing our families to the redeeming work of Christ so that he can be formed in us and made known to the world. Um, Something actually kind of frightening happened the other day. and blew my mind. I think my kids spend way too much time with me. Um, we were hanging out the other day and my son Judah, he's two years old, he was telling me a story. And uh, in the middle of his story, he said, um, hey mom, can we go to the park? Question mark. Um, hey mom, comma, can we? Question mark. And I was like, what are you saying? Are you a genius child that now um, knows punctuation. Like this is, this is brilliant. This is awesome. But what I realized is that he was mimicking my text to talk when I text people that I am saying question mark and comma, and that he has listened to me do that over and over again, that he is now mimicking the way that I say text to talk in conversations with people. It just blew my mind. Another example is um, my other son, you know, is my kids are obsessed with trucks and I know way more about construction vehicles than I ever, ever dared dream to know. But one time um, Zion was playing with the dump truck and the dump truck was doing what it should do, which is load dirt, drop off dirt, load dirt, drop off dirt. That's apparently what dump trucks do. And uh, suddenly, the dump truck um, lost its keys, 
and forgot its wallet at home and heated up its coffee in the microwave about 10 times. And that's when I knew my kids spend way too much time with me. But I think the reality is, is that so much about family discipleship is caught, not taught. That is about how we live that best impacts our children. And if we look back, when Moses used the word impart or impress, it means that it starts with us, that we have to have our own intimacy with Jesus. We've got to offer our own personal attention and our own being in our own space to God first before it can be overflowed to our kids. You see, if Jesus is your well of living water, then Jesus will be your children's well of living water through you. I think I want to take another holy pause and just whatever you're doing right now in the car or if you are um, at home or at work, just want to give you a space to be with Jesus in a moment, just receiving him as your living water. That's so much about what we do and so much about family discipleship is actually about receiving from him first, offering him our attention and our affection and our space and our whole selves to who he is. Because not only is Jesus the way and the truth and the life, he calls himself our living water. So I think when we think about family discipleship, we need to know that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to Jesus. And he's given that authority to us. And so now we're called to, therefore, in our going, make disciples within our home. I think the question is, where do we start? How is this attainable? And see, I think the framework is similar to the Israelites, but the different focus is Jesus. So we have the same framework, but a new focus. And so... Now we're going to go into three new pillars of framework that we can follow today in our family discipleship. And the first one is that attention to God's presence is continual. So attention to God's presence is continual. Um, I want you to think of a time that you got to go on vacation alone with your spouse or with someone that you, a friend or a parent, Um, Specifically, I'm thinking about a time last year where my husband and I had the opportunity to go to Mexico together um, for about seven nights, which was unheard of and awesome and amazing. But what I found so funny is that, you know, we drop our kids off at my amazing in-laws who were willing to watch our kids and we get on a plane and then suddenly we look at each other and it's the two of us. And suddenly we realize we have no place to go or to be apart, but we're literally together all day, every day for eight days. And it was just like I was overwhelmed by his presence just being there with me. Because usually we are going and coming back home and heading to the next thing or making dinner. That Sam's presence, um, I, I wasn't always paying attention to Sam's presence um, We weren't, it's not a continual thing, but on vacation, it was this surprise, this pleasant surprise that I got to see him every day, all day. 
And I think what's powerful about that picture is that we don't understand is that we don't need to be so separated from God to access God or separated with God to access God, that he's accessible in our going and in our doing, that Jesus has given us access to the fullness of God always, that we have the personal presence of God. Ephesians 2 verse 18 says, for through him, we both have access to the father by one spirit. So without the presence of God, my home is just a box. With the presence of God, it's a sanctuary. So I think when it comes to being attentive to God's presence continually, we have to start by practicing individually. That practicing God's presence in our home allows us to be aware of God's activity around us. Looking back at the Old Testament, they connected moments to God's law. But now we connect ordinary moments to God's presence. It's saying, Lord, I am here. I am attentive. I am ready. Help me to see you in the ordinary moments. So how do we individually turn our ordinary moments and directing them towards him? It's about perhaps committing what we're already doing to an awareness of God. I think a lot of times when we think about being attentive or communing with God, we think we need to add to our life. But I think it's more about shifting our life and what we're already doing to involve communion with him. One commentator puts it this way. It's like being on a God hunt. I've seen God active within our homes and seeing God active in our, in our daily whereabouts. He says it this way, practicing the presence of Christ is simply a way we love him, stay connected to him throughout the day. So I think um, a pastor I respect, an author I respect, his name is John Mark Comer. He once said that if you want to learn to brush your teeth, you have to, or if you want to learn to floss your teeth, you have to do one tooth at a time. So I think a way that we can start practicing this is just dedicating one task a day to an awareness of God. Perhaps it's a conversation with him as we wash dishes. Or being super attentive to worship songs. What are the words actually saying? What are the words speaking over me? Something that I tried recently, which was very difficult, was I turned my music off when I ran. But the thing about it is... um, Shutting out the noise created space for for him, and it was powerful and difficult, but I think it's moments like that that when we invite a space to listen to God and be with God and stuff we're already doing. Um, this is one that when I wrote this talk, um, I added in, and then I, I feel like the next day God wanted to see if I meant it, but it's practicing presence in, his, in interruptions, so just saying, God, I'm here. I am here in interruptions. And so the very next day, I just so happened to get a flat tire on um, my way to dropping my kids off at preschool. And not only that, but my um, four-year-old decided that was going to be the night that he was going to wake up every few hours. And we found ourselves in the kitchen eating biscuits with him. And it's just like, okay, God, holy interruptions. Let me see you. Let me be aware of what you're doing in these interruptions. 
practicing this with our kids, I think we can connect moments to God both explicitly and implicitly as we're going. So explicitly, are we getting dressed in the morning? Talk about what it means to be clothed in Christ. Pray together to be clothed in Christ. If we're at the dinner table, we could talk about how Jesus is the sweetness of bread of life and living water, that we actually have a greater hunger in us for him. Or maybe we're doing homework. You know, take a moment to reflect on the sweetness of God's wisdom and instruction. My friend Hannah does this, and I think it's brilliant. It's every time um, her son lies, she talks about how sweet the truth is. That there's a sweetness when we tell the truth, and there's... um, beauty in the truth. I love that. Taking an opportunity to point to God. We can do this implicitly. You see, the closer we are to Christ, the deeper his influence is going to be in us. Our children will know him by his living water through us. So it could be they sense him through a spoken word of encouragement or an extra hug at bedtime. That the Holy Spirit is so strong in us that They sense the fruit of the Spirit in us, that there's an extra extension of grace, an opportunity of celebration. Paul David Tripp says it this way, Your hope as a parent is not found in your power or your wisdom or your character, your experience or your success, but in this one thing alone, the presence of your Lord the creator, the savior, the almighty, the sovereign king is with you. He's with you. Let your heart rest. Your potential is greater than the size of your weaknesses. Because the one who is without weaknesses in you does his best work through those who admit that they are weak, but in weakness still heeds the call. I love that. I think for myself, if I'm being honest, from the minute my boys were born, I've made a lot of mistakes. I haven't gotten it all right. And what I hold on to every day is that the the anchor of their flourishing and the anchor of their life is not me or my strength or my ability to be perfect or my ability to have it together or do the right things or the right snacks, but Their lives are anchored in the presence and the person of Jesus. And I want my home to be a place to encounter him and to know him. So the first one is that God's, or attentiveness to God's presence was continual. The second one is that participation with Jesus is holistic. I remember when I... um, was getting excited about being a young mom. A lot of people in really, really sweet, kind moments were saying to me things like, oh, make the most of the time. It's just so sweet. Treasure this season. It goes so fast. Soon they'll be married. Um, Treasure it, treasure it, treasure it. But then you think sometimes as parents, we're seeking the how, the how to treasure, how, how do we delight Because unfortunately, when a pandemic comes in or there's upheaval and chaos in our world, parenting can turn to survival. Jen Wilkins says this, if parenting and marriage can put you in survival mode, it's ready to pronounce any day in which everyone makes it to bedtime alive as a raging success. 
but we know in our hearts that more is required of us than survival. I think what we have to see here is it's Jesus that moves us from survival to fullness. He moves us from survival to fullness. He is the axis. He's the center of fullness. That we are going to have to show up and do the work. We are going to have to show up and do the labor. And we are going to have to show up and be faithful. But it's going to be out of the overflow of his fullness. If in the Old Testament they were clothed in God's law, then we need to be excited and celebrating about being clothed in Christ. How do we do this? Well, one thing that I've started to do is pray John 15 over my family. Because John 15 talks about this gardener. I like to picture my family as a garden. I like to picture our home as a garden. And this gardener, specifically a vine dresser, is used to describe God as Father. You see, this vine dresser knows its vine for decades. It comes to know it in a personal way, much like a shepherd with his sheep. He knows what makes each specific vine flourish. He knows how they respond, what needs they have. He knows what he needs to do to nurture it and fertilize it. So every day I say, Lord, I offer my family to you as a garden, that you would be the vine dresser, that you would prune out anything that doesn't belong, that you would see it with attentive care. God, remove the spaces and the affections and the things we have that aren't of you, God. And then the second thing is I picture Jesus as a vine with my family because he says this, as the vine abide in me as I abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Abide means to make your home in Jesus. So I think holistically we can say, okay, Lord, we offer the entirety of ourselves, our whole souls to you, God, our home, our children, our lives, our affections, our attention. God, we give it to you. We abide in you. Because he calls himself the way. We can offer him our trust, relinquishing control, receiving him. He calls himself the truth. We can offer our minds. We can be obedient to his words. We can trust his words. And he calls himself the life. That every day we can die to self. That we can practice his life through us. Next session, our third session, we're going to be um, taking a deep dive in how to do all of this really practically. And so if this is overwhelming or if this is a lot to take in about um, making our home in Jesus, then next session we'll be looking at uh, just going to the drawing board and how do we do this that in a way that fits our family and our context right now because it could look different for everyone. Um, and this is also, um, there's notes that are accessible for this teaching um, if you're interested. So um, next time it's going to be all about practicing this. The last thing that I want to talk about today if, and the third framework is that um, 
Jesus is now the framework of the household. That he's the framework of the household. My husband and I recently saw the movie Spider-Man, and I am absolutely obsessed. It, it was phenomenal. Uh, but what I love about Spider-Man, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but a common statement that is made with this particular superhero is that um, with great power comes great responsibility. And that this is a statement that in Spider-Man's life, people are often reminding him of, they're pointing him to this statement uh, that they're bringing this to his mind, that this is essentially the mission statement of who he is as a superhero. I think about Lord of the Rings, one ring to rule them all. Or perhaps uh, in the TV show, Friday Night Lights, uh, Coach Taylor is always saying, clear eyes, full hearts, full hearts can't lose. And I think what's powerful about this is that it, it's what unites a group of people, that we've got the same mantra, that we've got the same mission statement, um, that we're not separate in our mission statements, we're not separate in our identities, that we are united in something. So I think the question to think about is, what's going to be your family's mission statement? What's something you want inscripted at the center of your home? Something that you want every member to be invited in on. It could be a verse or a statement. I think the question is, what do you want written on your children's heart this year? A commentator says that we can write, we can write things on our hearts of our children but it's the Holy Spirit that deepens it into our hearts of our children. I think we need to trust in the work of the Holy Spirit. That there's going to be times when we're practicing these things and our kids are absolutely going to hate it and grumble and not want to be a part of it and roll their eyes. And here's the thing. We've got to show up and we've got to do the work. And these are the seasons that we got to labor through. Someone once told me that family discipleship is a lot like um, food, that sometimes it's like this massive feast and it's going really well and you're seeing all kinds of fruit to your labor. And sometimes it's like a snack that you're just seeing a little bit of fruit to the stuff you're doing. Or sometimes you feel like it's a fast, that there's no food, no fruit happening at all, but no matter where what the work has to say the same the faithfulness has to say the same he is with you he is working it matters there's so many things in my life now that have been inscripted and deepened into my heart because of my parents faithfulness and we can do the same i think just as it was done in deuteronomy we too can practice a physical reminder of truth an idea I had um, is a truth wall, is everyone gets to contribute to the truth wall. What are, what are things about God or what are truths that they want to contribute? Um, or perhaps maybe have each kid pick out a different type of sign. Maybe one wants a neon sign and the other one wants a, leather board, or a letter board, but they get to create their own sign of uh, the truth that they want to uphold and remember or if you're feeling really adventurous, uh, pick a wall, the only wall in all of the world that your kids get to ride on. Let them ride on it. 
Uh, let them write down true things about Jesus. Make it fun. Make it enjoyable. Make it a whole activity um, as a family. And I think remember that what you're doing matters. Even if you can't see it now. That the Holy Spirit is going to deepen these truths on your children's heart for the rest of their lives. I think today it'd be, there's an invitation to pray over your home. To ask God to cover the home, to come be a sanctuary. God, I don't want a box. I don't want my kids coming home to a box. I want them to have a sanctuary of your presence. So the three frameworks that we talked about is that God's attentiveness to God's presence was continual, is continual. That participation with Jesus is holistic and that Jesus is a framework of the household. This is family discipleship to offer our families to the redeeming work of Christ so that he can be formed in us and made known to the world. We're making disciples in home to go make disciples, to go make disciples, to once again be a vehicle of God's presence, to bring abundance and goodness to our world. It's important work. How I want to conclude is to briefly talk about the promises of God. Because the beauty of this whole thing that we're talking about is that the hope is not in our promises. That our human promises are limited, not trustworthy. But God's promises are unlimited and they're so trustworthy that we can build a foundation on his promises and what he says over our family instead of what we say or what man says about our family. I want to just read over you um, right now, just to take another holy pause, promises that God has for you within family discipleship. These are just a few. Scripture is blanketed with um, all of God's promises. But here's a few that I just want you to take with you, to hold with you, to be the anchor of your home, is that first he promises to be with you. That he promises to be with you. In John 14, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, the Holy Spirit, a personal and present God, who will never leave you. And he leads you into all truth. A personal God. A present God. He promises to take care of your needs. In Philippians 4, it says, And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from the glorious riches which we have been given in Christ Jesus. I said earlier, you're a beneficiary of everything that Christ has when Christ died and rose again, that you now receive everything that he has, his position and his authority. And he's going to give you everything you need. And the last one I want to leave you with and cover you with is that God promises an eternal home in the new earth. Ah, I love that. When God describes dwelling with him, he describes a home. That's how important homes are to him. 
He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. We as parents have very important positions right now to create an environment and discipleship with our home. But if we look at Genesis and we have this home that was created in the garden and then we have this promise of where we're going in this home in the new earth with God fully and completely and whole, then this in-between time is so fundamentally important that our homes matter, that God cares about homes, and ultimately that we're invited into the redeeming work of Christ here on earth. Thank you so much for listening today. Um, Next session, like I said, we're going to be going a little bit more practically about how to navigate some of this and take this information into your personal context. So everything that you heard today, um, we're going to connect that with your own context right now and the things and the places that you're involved in. And so I hope you'll join us. Um, our next session that's in March and you're invited uh, is on March 9 here at Centerpoint and it'll be at 6 p.m. So we'd love to have you there. Um, Thank you for um, listening today and have a blessed rest of your week.